Hello and welcome to an interview special of The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. This episode was recorded in Davos to coincide with the World Economic Forum and is with one of the most influential people in the world of business and technology. Matt Britton leads business and operations across Europe, the Middle East and Africa for Google. He and I sat down to discuss his personal journey, the role that Google can play in supporting communities and more widely how technology can help solve some of the world's most pressing problems. Let's get to the conversation. Matt, welcome to The Lens. Great to be here. Thanks, Ollie. Now, we are here in the mountains in Davos, and uh, I'm going to take my first chance to ask you to uh, look back across your life and your career to tell us what your very first job was. Gosh, well, um, the first thing I did as a student was working for a number of weeks in season uh, in a warehouse for Sainsbury's, basically loading up goods to go out to their stores. And actually, uh, over the last eight years, I've been a non-executive uh, director at Sainsbury's. So I've kind of come full circle. Come full that. circle. And did the current management go back to the floor where you would have been? Well, do you know, it is one of the things that we all have to do if you're leading an organisation. The bigger you get, the more the risk is you get disconnected from the front line. So I really try and spend time with our teams in Dublin and around Europe, listening to how they're interacting with customers and users and everything. That's a vital thing to do as a leader. Yeah. I always think it's interesting whether people tell people they're coming or whether they whether they turn up. I guess there's a benefit in both sometimes. Yeah, I mean, hopefully you're not too intimidating as a leader so that people will continue to behave in the normal way, but it's right. I mean, really important, though, to keep listening to what's going on, particularly as the world's changing faster than ever. And if you look across um, those early steps in your career, any particular turning point, anything that really set you on the current path, what would you say was the Gosh, well, there's a few things. I think it's very easy to look backwards and make a coherent story, but I always (laughs) say to people at an early stage of their career, it's about creating options. So um, I was uh, a full-time athlete in the British rowing team uh, when I started work, and I got a job in real estate because they liked sports people. I'd go training in the morning, have a sleep in the loo at work, go training in the afternoon. They seemed to be okay with that. Um, and then um, I realized that uh, I wasn't going to win an Olympic gold medal, eventually stopped business school, consulting, media, and then uh, Google, which I started 12 years ago. So quite a random walk. Yeah, so Google in 2007. And why was it that you wanted to get on board that particular, already a juggernaut by that stage, but what was it in the main? Well, I was fascinated by then with um, the art and science of business, with how you, how you delight users, consumers, people with products and services, and how you find a way of doing that profitably and successfully and sustainably uh, over time. And through consulting, I had the chance to work in media, marketing, technology, retail. Google was looking for somebody who had understood all those things, who could work across industry sectors, who was strategic. And in the last couple of years, working in a media company, I had experience of digital in more depth. And so it just happened that there was a coincidence of what Google was looking for and what my interests were. And I must say, I've really enjoyed the variety, the pace uh, that I've I've seen since. Now, Google is so many things to so many people. You must hear uh, many different um, descriptions of it. Is there a common misconception about Google, its powers, its activities? You must find yourself constantly uh, having to set the record straight on certain things. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So mostly when I talk to people about how they use Google, uh, they are really positive. You know, they like having the ability to search the world's information, to translate instantly. I often get people saying to me, you know, saved my holiday because Google Maps showed me there was a traffic jam or whatever. So most people, uh, I think, on a personal level, really enjoy and think the products have a certain degree of magic to them. 
But you're right, you know, there's a whole range of questions around technology, its role in society, its disruption, uh, some of them posed by industries that are being disrupted themselves. And I, I therefore spend a lot more of my time these days trying to look at how technology can play a positive role in society. Often on these policy topics, you know, we share a point of view. For example, data protection in Europe has been a big theme, GDPR, in the last year or so. We have a very strong point of view at Google that consumers should have total control over the use of their data, and it should be fairly transparent to them about how they can exert those controls and make those choices. But getting the detail of that right is really important. So trying to be a bit more in the room and sharing the expertise that we've built up over time to, to help address some of those issues is really important. So important debates and topics, it's helpful to be able to show up and, and share some experience. And in terms of your role across this particular region, some of Google's activities clearly headquartered out of the West Coast of America. What sort of powers then effectively reside with you and across this region and what, frankly, um, will only ever really resonate out of, out of the United States? Well, I guess my job really is to help uh, users, businesses, organisations and countries in the region make the most of the digital revolution uh, through Google products and services. And it's to help Google to be successful and a good long-term partner for all those countries. So it means that Euros of pivot point. Definitely what we try to do is build products that scale globally to billions of people. And, you know, you'd be aware of that, whether it's YouTube or Search or Maps or Gmail or Android. These are all things that are really built with scale and being free to users and, and simple uh, and easy. Uh, but, of course, they have to work according to the rules and regulations and customs and norms in every country. So what I've spent time doing the last few years since taking on this regional role is trying to make sure we've got really strong country teams who can reflect the country's culture uh, and who can help us to make sure that we both build globally scalable technology, but also reflect and adapt to the environment in each place. And, and Europe is actually raising lots of the questions around technology and its use that need to be raised globally. Privacy and security, copyright, content policy, what should be online and shouldn't be online. These are all important questions, and I think Europe is often leading on those questions. Mm, and what do you say to the, um, to the critic who says that actually over the years, um, you know, Google's power has made it tougher for those much smaller news organisations, particularly independently, particularly across countries here uh, in the UK and in other areas, made it tougher for them to survive. When I took this job, uh, actually, as a former publisher, we used to work in the newspaper industry, one of the things I did was uh, set up a dialogue with the publishing industry across the region because we're an information business and we want to connect people to quality content. And we knew that publishers were struggling with the migration the digital world. And by working closely with publishers, we've identified a number of things we can do to help them. Like the most important thing is when you're looking for news, and this happens 10 billion times a month, people come to Google and ask us about news. And we send 10 billion times a month people to one of 80,000 news publishers. So we know they're not fakers. We know they have journalists. You, you know, broad spread of political opinion in there, but they're all news organizations. That's a big thing we do for the industry. Second thing we do is help them make money. So uh, AdSense is the way in which we can help you by putting ads on your site. You get the majority of the revenue. Uh, I think we paid out over $12 billion last year uh, uh, in AdSense publication, much of that to news organizations. And then increasingly in the last couple of years, fighting fake news, and the new part of fake news is misrepresenting uh, who you are and the facts at scale. It's principally a problem on social media because with Google, people come to us and ask us about a news topic. We're not suggesting something to you. But the new thing on fake news is misrepresentation at scale. So we've been trying very hard to uh, make sure that AdSense doesn't fund anybody who's faking. 
uh, raising the bar and how we police these things. So that's some of the ways in which we partner with the publishing uh, industry. I see. So in terms of this very large question about how Google can be a supporter of the communities in which it uh, you know, in which it exists. Um, clearly, first and foremost, you're developing the products that you are, and we've talked around that. So how do you go beyond that, particularly in terms of engaging in the grassroots? How do you go about that? Something I'm really passionate about. So obviously, the majority of what we do is provide people with free tools um, that help them live their lives. Uh, in the UK, uh, we had an independent report done uh, last year uh, that suggested that our products had about £37 billion uh, of consumer surplus. In other words, saving you time, money and effort by, um, uh, by helping you, uh, which is pretty uh, amazing. But I do think we have an obligation to do more than that. And some of it is about engaging in policy debates. Uh, some of it is about skills. And so one of the other things I'm really proud of having launched is uh, a programme for training people in digital skills. Not necessarily to be an expert coder, but you know, how do you gain the skill that can help you grow a business? And uh, we launched a, a program four years ago, and we've now trained five million Europeans, four million uh, in Africa, uh, on digital skills. And, and we this know is known as Google Garage, or is this yes, a bit broader than it, that? It's known as Google Garage in the UK. What we do is in each country, we try to partner with different organizations and address the digital skills gap in a way that's relevant. So in the UK, we focused on getting out of London to communities which have seen less opportunity from the digital revolution. In Germany, it's been about the Mittelstand. In Spain, it's been about youth unemployment, but always about bringing you uh, tools and skills that can help you grow a business. And I think what we've seen is nearly a million so far of those we've trained reported back that they've got a new job, started a business or grown a business. Blown away by demand. Another encouraging factor is 47% um, of the people who've taken up those trainings are female. And classically, you think about science, technology, engineering, maths being maybe only a quarter of people going into those areas are women. So I think there's an opportunity. There's latent demand. Digital Garage in the UK has gone to Sheffield, Manchester. We've been in 300 towns across the UK. I think we've learned again that there's real demand. And I think one of the key things to think about when you think digital is actually small businesses. So Google provides tools. You think about Google or Facebook or Amazon, but actually the engine of the digital economy is small businesses who are growing faster and exporting more because they've got a way to connect with somebody who wants their product right now. And that's a revolution. So you are personally heavily empowered across Europe, Middle East, Africa to go further in your community engagement. How would you like to really push that agenda? And is there a message that you're currently sending to your own colleagues? What would you like to see yourselves do more of? Well, I'm, I'm pleased to say that the, the programmes we've done on digital skills have now become global. Sundar Pichai actually was, uh, was in uh, Germany yesterday opening our new Berlin office, but talking again about how we can help uh, people make the most of this digital revolution. So I think some of the stuff we've done in Europe has become something which we're doing uh, elsewhere. I think there's another key piece of the jigsaw, which is um, in the next couple of months, we reach the 50-50 moment. Uh, Tim Berners-Lee uh, talks about this in terms of the World Wide Web Foundation. Mm. The moment where, for the first time, the majority of the people on the planet are connected. And that's a huge opportunity uh, for businesses, content creators, uh, developers uh, in the UK and across Europe, uh, because they're going to have basically a doubling of the market that they can reach. And you think about things like Google Translate, think about the things like the fact that when somebody searches for the product you make anywhere in the world, you can choose to show up and connect with them. 
Uh, it's a real revolution uh, in an opportunity for businesses large and small. And what digital has done is it's massively reduced the barriers so that anyone with a smartphone and an idea can become a global business immediately. Mm. When I was growing up, it was only the biggest multinationals that could do that. I mean, all too often we see uh, certain organisations claim to be connecting people. And actually what they're doing is enabling people to connect with the people they already know, but just in new and creative ways. I wonder if Google, other tech companies perhaps, have a role to play in connecting those who don't already know each other. Do you think that might be an opportunity? Well, look, there's been obviously a lot of debate and discussion here in Davos is no exception um, about the polarisation of society. And I, I, I certainly follow a lot what uh, Edelman as an organisation do, looking at trust. Is there a trust barometer which they produce? How it's changed around the world. And I think, you know, there is a fundamental social issue at the moment, which I read as being in the financial crash, the organisations which seem to have caused that haven't been held to account. This is a popular perception. Uh, that real income growth has been static or declining in many countries for 10 years, and people feel that the system is stacked against them. And I think that's something that's fundamental. Obviously, we see it in the UK with Brexit. You see it in Germany with the rise of the ARD, in France with the rise of the right. You see it across, you know, with the effect of Trump in the US. And I think there is a challenge, you know, and it's ironic talking about this sitting here in Davos. It's not my favourite place, but it's a very productive place to come. Uh, there's a challenge of reconnecting with ordinary people. And I think it's important for organisations like Google to make sure our products really do work for everyone mm. and that they help people get educated, uh, get smarter, get skills and participate in the opportunity rather than get left behind. And in terms of those political tussles, to put it lightly, does Google have any role to play in supporting uh, the politicians it most considers aligned with its own views and beliefs. I think we have to be very careful about that. Um, you know, people see Google as a search engine that helps them find information of all sorts, and we wouldn't want to um, have any kind of political bias. Obviously, we have to ensure that we don't carry illegal content, uh, you know, Nazi promoting content in Germany or whatever. But I think it's very important for us to uh, encourage a diversity of opinion that's out there and to allow people to make informed choices. And obviously, we do things like make sure that our products and services are working well in election periods. Obviously, there's a lot of concern about election interference uh, in the light of US uh, and also revelations about the Brexit referendum and illegal behaviour there. So we work really hard to ensure that we're providing quality content and information. I mentioned earlier how we work with publishers to try to do that. We work with independent fact-checking organisations actually now to label results as having been fact-checked. And I think uh, I hope that Google can play an important role in helping people find and research what actually is being said and what do they believe is the right answer here. Yeah. I wonder if we can just zoom in in particular. We talked about this potential for technology to uh, improve society, to, um, to improve the state of the world, um, to quote the World Economic Forum. Are there specific examples uh, which come to your mind that you've seen in organisations, uh, not necessarily your own, uh, large or small, um, which particularly inspire you and you would draw our attention to? I think a couple of things that, that really occur to me as being big positive opportunities ahead of us. The first is the connection of everybody that's not connected to the internet. And we talk a lot about the issues and the questions of uh, what happens when you're connected, but actually there's so many benefits, just access inf to information, product and services, uh, finding things at the right price, and education. I think the education revolution is enormous. If I look at YouTube, which we run, I think we have more than a billion views of how-to videos every day. People are just educating them themselves in the moment they need it, and they're often learning from people like them. And that's a revolution. If you, you look at people in emerging markets, access to the kind of educational content that they could never have dreamed of. So I think that's transformational, hugely positive for society. The second thing is a technical thing, which we talk about a lot, which is AI. 
um, machine learning uh, is allowing us to build smarter tools that work for everyone. Simplest example would be just being able to speak to Google and getting results back in, in audio. Um, over the last few years, the ability to recognize language accurately uh, using less data at less bandwidth, which is important if you're paying, you know, if you're on a low income and you're paying for bandwidth, is revolutionary. And I think um, building better tools that work for everyone, uh, really important, not just in things like language and uh, video and audio, but also uh, we've done some research which we've published on medical applications. So retinal ophthalmology, using machine learning to look at millions of images of eyes, correlate that with medical diagnoses that have been made and find things like a linked to what you can see in the eye and heart disease. Mm, and, and, and this is coming out particularly, I think, through DeepMind, uh, one, of, one of Google's companies around artificial intelligence. Um, leads me to um, reflect that actually to solve some of our biggest problems, we might need to see public and private sector organisations working together. Uh, do you agree with that? And what do we have to be mindful of as we imagine what those partnerships might start to look like? There are some really interesting things emerging from um, the reality of what we're doing with machine learning and what people are doing with machine learning. Um, you mentioned DeepMind. It's great that they are based in London. We've got, uh, they're really the spearhead of a lot of our research in this area, but also Google more broadly is working. So uh, we actually published recently a review of all Google's work in uh, AI and machine learning last year. Lots of it, just like a research field in computer science, is open so others can take what we've learned and build on it. A couple of things I'd say. First is, um, although it's easy to write headlines saying machine learning is going to sort of eat the world and jobs are all going to be destroyed, actually the reality is it's a bit like electricity. It can make you a lot more productive. None of us are worrying about, well, is electricity going to destroy jobs? It's just allowing me to you know, spend the two hours I would have spent a day doing the washing up, doing other stuff. What we've learned on things like the medical side is uh, actually that the um, machine on its own uh, or doctors on their own are not as good as the combination of the two. And I think, you know, think about it as just ways of building tools that can work. But also, I think, you know, there are genuine concerns. And we published uh, last year our AI principles, uh, which we think we will evolve and develop. Uh, we published them for debate and discussion. How do we guide ourselves to the right ways to think about these new technologies? So there's a, a good debate which we've tried to prompt ourselves. And we're working with more and more organizations collaboratively on how you develop this field, how we make sure it's used for good. Uh, I think it's an exciting time to be a part of it. And I do wonder, Matt, whether there's a connection there, because regardless of the jobs that are created, certainly some jobs will be replaced um, by this automation that we're discussing. I wonder whether private sector firms have a responsibility of the reskilling of some of those people. Is that, is that a role that you can play? Is that for others? Yeah, well, I mentioned uh, you know, that we've already trained uh, around 9 million people in Europe, the Middle East and Africa in digitals skills, particularly because we see the advantages of having those skills for the businesses that are growing faster and creating jobs. But I do think it's more and more going to be on companies. Uh, you know, because of the amount of training that we've done, I'm often asked by policymakers about, you know, education, and I'm an amateur in that field. But what I'd say is, you know, I graduated from university in 1989. That's the year Berners-Lee wrote the memo that led to the creation of the World Wide Web. I've spent the last 20 years in jobs that exist only because of that invention. So how do you train people? And that's graduating from university. So how do you train your children who are at school now to have the skills they need? And I think there's a shift towards curiosity, creativity, collaboration, communication skills, because they can go online and research and learn from a whole range of sources that just weren't there when I was growing up. So there's a real uh, debate to be had about how we educate people to be critical thinkers, 
and to be curious. And of course, we all need to understand context and lots of education needs to remain as a foundation. But there are totally new ways of learning as well. And I think businesses have a, a big role to play because the world's changing so fast in ensuring that employees uh, continue to develop skills that they can be relevant. Excellent. Welcome back to The Lens. I'm here with Matt Britton, who leads Google's business across Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Matt, you, um, you and I are sitting here at, uh, on, a, on a mountaintop in Davos, and you said uh, uh, a little earlier in our conversation that you found it to be a very productive environment. I wonder if I could ask you, Matt, about the role of face-to-face encounters in an increasingly digital world. We could be having this conversation on Skype. Uh, we needn't have come up a mountainside. What role does it play and what do you what do you notice personally i think face-to-face interaction is almost more important in the digital world what's great about digital is you can connect with people who've got shared interests who you would never otherwise have been able to find which is brilliant you often find when people do that that they actually want to get to get together face to face um you know why is davos a productive place to me for me to come you know my role is quite broad geographically and i can meet with the ceos and policymakers from countries around the region, probably have about 40 one-to-one meetings in the time that I'm here that would take months to do elsewhere. Everybody's here with a bias towards action as well, so that's incredibly helpful. Yeah, and except just on this point of taking months, they could have been set up, I suppose, as conference calls, as video calls, telephone calls, and so on. Is there something that happens in a face-to-face environment you notice could be here, could be internally at Google, that just can't be achieved over digital? Uh, yeah, I think that's. I think it does. At Google, we use our own Hangouts technology. We run the business on it. I have meetings uh, all week uh, with colleagues all around Europe, uh, Middle East, Africa, and actually a lot with California. But I still travel to California probably once a quarter and spend at least a week there. Uh, and what's the difference? Well, I think the difference is the side conversation, the personal chit-chat. I think when you're on a formal meeting, on a call, it tends to be very task-focused. And actually, organizations work through relationships and through trust and uh, through the ability to ask informal advice quietly with people. All of those sort of informal things are really important. I often say at Google to my colleagues, you know, um, behavior eats process for breakfast. And you want to have a culture, which is about how we do things around here, the shared values. And that's hard to build exclusively through uh, sort of digital contact, even if it's high-quality video. Right, so you're making me think about this power of informality and linked to that, I suppose, is this importance of the ability to take risks with ideas, to sound stuff out. And I wonder that in a world in which we're increasingly encouraged for everything to be, of course, transparent and essentially on the record, how do we encourage people? How do you encourage your teams to take risks with ideas? Because sometimes, I guess, David Ogilvy said the best ideas start as jokes, so make the thinking as funny as possible. So sometimes they're not always palatable in their first iterations. How do we tread this line? It's a really interesting um, question. I think the way in which Google has tried to continue to be innovative, even as we've got larger and more complicated, is to have small teams uh, working closely together, highly collaboratively on big problems and trying to empower those teams to get on and work hard. What that means is that you risk a bunch of people duplicating efforts. You risk things not always working perfectly together, but you have the chance of real breakthroughs. And I think that's something I really strongly believe in. So I spend a lot of time with our teams talking about you know, acting like an owner, thinking about well, what should Google be doing in this area, knowing your stuff really well, get on and do it. Uh, but winning as a team, you know, you have to also think about where can I get help? And I try to encourage 
a culture which empowers people to act like an owner, but encourages people to ask for help and to offer help. Uh, and I think that's a useful way of being an antidote to processes and systems and KPIs and checklists and all of those things which can bog us down. Right. Now, I've heard that phrase, act like an owner, in a couple of different organisations. Just help bring it to life for us. Is there an example of something that you've seen somebody do or that you would encourage someone to do that would just take that on as a philosophy? A good example of that would be, I mentioned earlier, our programme on digital skills. We've now trained millions of people. That came from uh, a few people in Poland who wanted to try to experiment with digital skills and act like an owner is saying, you know, that's an issue you see, go and make something happen. Scrap some things together. They did this with some partners, a bit of spare budget they convinced their manager to get. It looked really promising. Uh, it came to my attention that this is really interesting. It's similar to something I did a while back in the UK. Could we do it elsewhere? Oh, the team in Spain have done something as well. And then winning as a team is saying, hang on, we've got a few things going on here that look successful. What if we join them up? What if we actually built something that could really scale still customise it, but actually do something that has genuinely big impact. Yeah, I sometimes get the impression, though, that to really progress thinking in large organisations, you might have to escape the attention of the very senior leadership team. So is that an activity yeah. you can encourage? No, completely. And obviously, you need to make sure you're managing risks and so on. But I think it's absolutely right. You know, deliberately in our engineering teams, you know, people do have the opportunity to get others to work on something that they're passionate about. Uh, and, you know, managers try to get out of the way of that. I think one other thing I'd say about innovation is it's very hard for organizations to do it on their own. And, you know, we partner with people all the time who've got complementary skills and capabilities who make us think differently. I notice our business relationships with our customers and partners uh, really help them to change and grow as well. So I think you can't do it all on your own. Right. And is there a type of organization that you would like to deepen your collaboration with? Because that is such a, an important activity, as you've said. I mean, I think we, you know, we, we work with such a variety uh, of organizations, particularly small businesses. I always find working with them really instructive. How can you make our stuff simpler so it's faster and easier for them to focus on growing? Equally, we work with some of the world's largest companies, multifaceted, complicated relationships. And I think, you know, we are still a young company. We're 20 years old. We've got a lot to learn. I think, you know, starting from that humility and trying to listen and learn from companies large and small is a really important thing for us to do. Excellent. Now I'm going to go um, into a slightly quicker, uh, just quick series of questions for you, Matt. We're coming uh, to the end of our time together. A piece of advice uh, to your former self, just as you were beginning on that career journey, what would you say? I think a couple of things like be yourself. I think early on in your career, you can feel the obligation to behave in ways you're trying to read what the organization wants of you. I certainly found that when I was working in consulting. It took me a while to come out of it and say, well, who am I again? So be yourself. Second thing is um, life is long. And I came into uh, the world of work out of sport where I was very focused on short-term goals and so on. And actually just uh, giving yourself the time to not do everything in parallel, but see that, you know, chances are our children are going to have working lives that extend well into their 80s. If that's the case, you don't have to do everything all at once. Mm. Uh, but finding out who you are, what you like doing, and creating options to do more of what you're good at that companies might want is really an important thing. So don't be in a rush. Excellent. A piece of advice to someone listening who's struggling. Google is ordering the world's information, but perhaps they're struggling with their own search to navigate their own career. A piece of advice about how you go from A to B. Could be to your own team, could be to someone outside the organisation. A good piece of advice that stuck with me is this, this point about creating options. So how, you know, if you're doing one thing, but you think you might want to do something else, how do you start to explore that? First thing is like the network of people you talk to, change that. So go and talk to people who do stuff like you do. 
I think, you know, in the world of business, people are often very happy to have a chat about stuff. You know, can I have a coffee with you and just understand what it is you do? I'm really interested. So create options and opportunities through who you know, your network, uh, and also trying to shape your job in the direction that you're interested in. Yeah, that makes very, very good sense. Returning to this theme of Davos, conversations that you are picking up on, what's on people's minds? I went to breakfast this morning, which was British business leaders. It's pretty clear what's on their mind. Really concerned about crashing out no-deal Brexit uh, and really concerned about playing their role in the UK economy in an extraordinarily uncertain time. So I think a lot of concern there. I think across the broader international community at Davos, there are lots of businesses who I think are seeing the opportunity to do more uh, for social impact. Uh, by which I mean, we talked earlier about the skills that people need going into the future, uh, sustainability, climate change. You know, these are big questions and governance are struggling to answer them. And I think, you know, businesses are thinking more about how we can play a role in that area. And it's something that I really welcome. And I think people want to come to work, not just to get the paycheck, but actually to do something that contributes. And, and I hope that we and others can help to uh, give people that opportunity. Yes. On that word uncertainty, you know, you were working through the global financial crisis uh, just over 10 years ago. Strange to compare them, but clearly those were also uncertain times. Do you feel a heightened sense of that uncertainty? Uh, yeah, in some, in some respects, obviously, you know, we mentioned the, the polarisation of society. Uh, I think people are uncertain about the role of China. They're uncertain about what the US is doing. They're uncertain about the future of the EU with and without Britain, but also the dynamics of the different countries. There. So I think there is a lot more uncertainty. For business, that means you've got to think about how do I operate effectively under uncertainty? I think partnering with people, becoming more agile, getting better at experimenting and learning. So, you know, you try a bunch of different things, see which works and get behind it, rather than trying to analyse the situation. Analysing uncertainty is hard. You're better off to try a few different things and learn and then get behind the ones which work best. Excellent. I tend to emerge from these conversations and meetings with a great hunger for knowledge. Is there a particular book uh, on your bookshelf that you return to or that you might pass on? Again, uh, it's one I enjoy asking. It doesn't have to be a business book. Two books I've read recently, Ollie, that I've really enjoyed. One, Factfulness by Hans Rosling, a former colleague of mine, brilliant at taking sort of the long view. And I think in times of uncertainty, that's also something that's really important to do. Don't lose sight of the big structural changes. That and you're... I took from it that the world isn't quite as gloomy a place yeah. as it's often it's made good, out to be. It's a good antidote to your news feed. Okay, and next one. Digest. Uh, the other one I'd say is uh, Exit West uh, by Masin Hamid. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, story of a relationship between two refugees just makes you think about the reality of other people's lives in a really creative way. And that stuck with me for a while as well. So it's a complimentary. Thank you. Excellent recommendations. Uh, my final question to you, Matt Brisson, uh, an organisation which has made it much easier to find anything in the world. Is there something which you personally, Matt Britton, are still searching for? What are you yet to find? Time. I'm always searching for time. I, you know, I'm really uh, fortunate to have a job that I love, Family, that's great. I like to continue to be fit and healthy, and I'm always curious about things. There's never enough time. So if we can manufacture some kind of TARDIS, I'd be very happy. Excellent. Well, we'll get working on that for next year. But uh, for now, hugely grateful uh, to catch up with you on The Lens. Matt Britton, thank you very much. Thanks, Ollie. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. If you like what you heard, please leave us a comment and subscribe to us on iTunes and you'll get the latest episodes as they drop. The Lens is a business in the community programme powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. 
Today's episode is produced and directed by Harvey Winter, with music and editing by Giselle Hall. Our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.